0: Good morning. Welcome to worship. Our Holy Gospel is from the 14th chapter of Luke, beginning at verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, you cannot be my disciple, and anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose that one of you wants to build a tower. Will you not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and is not able to finish it, then every, any, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able to, with 10,000 men, oppose one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple." The Gospel of our Lord. Again, I invite you to join me on this Sunday morning as we uh, come into this time of meditation together today, and let us begin by praying the Holy Spirit prayer. Come Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle in us the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and we shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit who instructs the hearts of the faithful, grant that by that same Holy Spirit we may be made truly wise and ever rejoice in your consolations. This we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. I recently drew a book off of my bookshelf that's been around for well over 40 years, the first time I read the book. It's entitled I, Judas. It's written by, it's co authored by two different book authors Taylor Caldwell, that's her surname, or that's her name that she writes under, No Longer Living, and another person by the name of Jess Stern. When I first read this book, it captured me in such a way that I simply could not put it down. There's books like that, isn't there? Have you ever read, I'm sure many of you have read books that somehow just capture you so much. My wife does that. As a matter of fact, my wife will read a book and sometimes she'll sit up all night long to read it because she simply cannot stop reading it. And this entire book is written from the perspective of Judas Iscariot. I know that I'm going to enjoy finishing this book again because it did not disappoint the first time around. And now I'm finally visiting that book again after 40 years. I, I, I mention that to you because one of the things that that book has done for me is it, it's even though it's a fictional book, it, it has helped to again give me some perspective into that whole scope of life. And I think that's one of the things that's important for us is as we read the Bible and as we hear it, I think it's important for us to kind of get this sense of of what life was like back during Jesus' day. And that's one of the things that this book does for me is it gives me this perspective into that whole scope of life and religious practice. The, even the politics of the day along with the reality that there was this oppressive occupation by Rome and there was this power struggle that was going on at that time and place. But the other thing that this book has done for me is that it, it helps me bring to life the prophetic hope that many people had. That there was this talk of this Messiah who many had felt would lead them to some kind of a military or political victory over the oppressive occupational presence that was that they were living under the other thing that this book has done for me is it's it's helped me to also get a sense of what it must have been like as they they the people there was this there was this buzz about this messiah there was there was this hunger for well for lack of a better term a savior king whatever that meant to them at that time and it seems quite obvious that the meaning of savior king was something that was being debated quite rigorously at that time. So once Jesus finally comes onto the scene, it's not surprising at all because of the buzz that's going on during the, that time of Jesus. It's not surprising to hear of these occurrences in our gospel reading about these large crowds of people flocking and following to Jesus and you know, wondering, is this the one? Is Jesus the Messiah, the one that the prophets have been talking about all of these years? I know that this is another one of those passages. It's a, it's a hard one. As a matter of fact, most preachers are probably avoiding this passage. They're probably re- preaching on the Philemon passage because that's such a nice passage, isn't it? Dear Philemon, Please, I just think it's so nice that we're having this wonderful relationship, and now I'm sending you Onesimus, and I guess that would be so much more fun to preach on than this. And for me, this passage does have more questions than answers. But one of the things that we certainly do get the impression is that the people that were traveling with Jesus, obviously, they were enthralled by him. They were enthralled by not only what he was doing through his healings, but also through his teachings. And I do wonder, and now maybe this is a stretch, but this is a question. As people have been kind of hanging around him, being enthralled by them, have some people actually got to the point where they're starting to, well, love him in a certain sense? We just love this Jesus guy! You know, and he does all these wonderful things. He heals people and he teaches. And he seems to be this person that is in touch with God. It's the presence of the divine when we're around him. We just love him. Did they have in their minds, perhaps, that this is the one they've been waiting for, Jesus the Messiah, the one in whom the prophets had spoke? I also wonder, were they traveling and following him with the intent? I wonder how much, I wonder how often we do things, how often do you do things with intent? I think that's an interesting question. You know, do we, we do things, and we do things with intention. And I sometimes wonder if these people that were following Jesus, if they had the intent or the frame of mind, for another way of looking at it, did they have the intent of becoming one of his disciples? My other question is, did these people that were following after Jesus, did they even know for sure what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus? What did Jesus mean when he said, you, to be my disciple you must da-da-da-da-da-da-da? You cannot be to my disciple unless... The other thing that I think is kind of interesting is that the people that were following Jesus, they were not even Christians yet. The whole concept, the whole idea, this whole word or identification as being a Christian, it wasn't even a part of their vocabulary yet. And I think that's one of the things that distinguishes them from us as different. They were not even yet Christian. They were Jews. They were Gentiles. They were nomads. They were people just off the road that just started following Jesus because everybody else was. Some of them probably didn't even have any kind of belief at all. You could probably say that some of the people that were following Jesus were Seekers. They were looking for something. You know, one of the things that we Christians have done over the last 2,000 years, now maybe I'm being a little facetious here when I say in our infinite wisdom, which I sometimes wonder if we have much infinite wisdom, because when I look at our world around us today, I think to myself, we're all a bunch of fools. We still can't seem to get it right. But one of the things that we Christians have done over the past 2,000 years, I suppose, to put, put it in a, in a better light, you could say, in our desire to come to have a greater understanding is that we Christians, we have Christianized the concept of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. We have written books, we've thought about it, we've meditated on it, we've We've ruminated on it. We've reflected upon it. We've searched the scriptures. And we've theologized. We've godologized what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And in many respects, it's ended up becoming this multi faceted, multi faceted theological hodgepodge of denominational definitions as to what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Ask a Baptist what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Ask a Methodist what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Ask an Episcopalian what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Ask a Lutheran. Ask a Pentecostal, and you'll all come up with different answers what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Is there any real clarity of all about what it means to be a disciple of Christ? You read ten books and you got ten different Theologies on what it means and 10 different perspectives on whatever your denominational theology choice is. And then there's this whole concept. There's this whole concept of hating your father, mother, sister, brother, which is another one of those strange and very difficult things to hear. And yet as as I looked into that more, because that was something that I felt I needed to have some clarity on, and I'm sure that you would like to have some clarity on that too. There are actually numerous Old Testament and New Testament references that suggest that hate, the word that Jesus used, is not hate in the harshest sense of the word, but rather it suggests that when we are asked or we are told to hate someone in the biblical sense, it means that you are being asked or told to love someone less than someone else, or you're to love something else, something less than something else. One of the commentary sources that I read was a a commentary by a gentleman by the name of Scott Hosey, and he points out in Deuteronomy chapter 21 verse 15 and following, it speaks about a man who had two wives, and the passage says that the one he loved and the other he hated. Well, that's not exactly what it really means. It's not this visceral hate but rather it's he 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 loved one wife more than he loved the other that's what it really means. We also have this parallel text for this passage today in Matthew chapter 10 verse 37 where Matthew makes it very explicit what Jesus is getting at here. He says that Jesus is talking about those who love father and mother more than they love Jesus himself. So that's really what Jesus is trying to get at here. Even though it sounds very harsh to us, what he's really saying is in order to be my disciple, you need to put God first. You've got to put God first, even before family. You've got to put God first, even before your children. You know, love God first and then reciprocate that love to the people around you. Time and time again, this is one of the things that I have found to be a pattern in the Gospels, and I don't know if this is a pattern that you have picked up on, but time and time again, Jesus oftentimes speaks in hyperbole. He speaks in exaggeration, and he does it to make a point. And the point that I believe Jesus is trying to make And it is one of the things that I have come to realize about a life of faith following Jesus. And it is simply this. I can't do it. I cannot do it without Jesus. I can't. It's impossible for me to have this life of faith without Jesus. Jesus has made it abundantly clear time and time again. I cannot save myself. And this is why Jesus came into the world. Yours and my salvation. I want to make this is very crystal clear. We've got to get this one into our heads, folks. Because I still have people come to me today and have conversations with me either in their home or in their office, in my office, and they literally come to me and they say, I'm not sure if I'm right with God. Let me make something very clear, people. Jesus has already done it. Your salvation, my salvation, it is finished. It is by Christ's salvific sacrificial love on the cross. It is by God's grace alone that we are saved. You are saved. Jesus has already done it for you. Every day of our lives, every day of our lives. We come into the presence of Christ and we are reminded of that overwhelming love of God through Christ's life-giving sacrifice on the cross for the sake of the world and his victory over death and the grave. It's a once and for all final act. Jesus has already done it. You and I are saved. And that, that is what makes it possible for us to not only believe, but also makes it possible for us to follow. A few years ago, I shared some reflective words to you, some thoughts regarding sacrifice, because I think that's one of the things that we also think about today in this passage, is that Jesus says you must give up everything. That implies sacrifice. Pastor theologian David Loss, he says that Jesus isn't inviting us into meaningless sacrifice. He isn't inviting doormat discipleship where we seem to be trampled upon day in and day out or taken advantage of because of our servant attitude. Rather, Jesus is inviting us into a full-bodied Christian faith. I love that term, the full-bodied Christian faith. That is, to the kind of abundant life that is discovered only as we give ourselves away. The kingdom of God, Jesus proclaims, is about life and love. And just as love is one thing that only grows after it is given away, so also is genuine and abundant life. Genuine and abundant life grows as we give ourselves away in service to Jesus. So what does it cost us to follow Jesus? One of the things that I want to just say to you is that I, I would hope that you would start your day with one simple phrase. This comes from a musical way back in the 60s and 70s, a song called Day by Day. Day by day, day by day, three things I pray. To see thee more clearly, to love thee more dearly, and to follow Thee more nearly. If that's the, all we can do each and every day as we enter into this life of abundant full-bodied Christian faith, is to simply start each day with, Lord, let me see you more clearly, love you more dearly, and follow you more clearly and more near- nearly. I have always believed that it means to follow Jesus. We put my, I put my total and complete trust in Jesus to love me and to accept me and to forgive me and that I walk in that grace and that forgiveness and that makes it possible for me to say through the gift of the Holy Spirit that I believe and I will follow and I will go where the Lord leads. I'd also like to think that it believe and believe that it also means that I die to self every day and that's where that prayer comes in, Lord. Day by day, let me see you more clearly, love you more dearly and follow you more nearly. I'd like to think that it means that we die to self. And some days we do that better than others. And some days I'm pretty lousy at it. And I think if you're honest with yourself, someday you're pretty lousy at it too. But you know what? Jesus is still there. He's still there loving you, and forgiving you, and accepting you, even in the midst of all those times when we seem to crumble and fall and fail. And that living to Christ means that I live in that, I love that term, that full-bodied Christian faith, where I serve, where I care for others, where I extend grace and acceptance, and as I live into that kind of abundant life that is discovered only as I give myself away. So I want you to leave you today again, day by day, Lord, Help me to see you more clearly, love you more dearly, and to follow you more nearly. To walk in your grace, your love, your forgiveness, and your peace. That I might continue in this daily walk of discovering what it means to carry my cross and to follow the Lord and Savior of my life. And to live an abundant life that is discovered only as I continue to give myself away in service to you. Amen.
1: As scattered grains of wheat are gathered together into one bread, so let us gather our prayers for the church, those in need, and all of God's good for the church around the world and for the mission of the gospel. Refresh the hearts of your people. Our understanding we share and strengthen our partnerships in the faith god of grace for the well-being of the earth and all its creatures for trees in force for all that yield fruit this season and for the streams and other bodies of water god of grace For the nations and those in authority, for the elected officials of our towns, states, and country, and for international organizations. Grant wisdom to those who govern and raise up citizens who make decisions in the best interest of their neighbors. God of grace. For all in need, for those who suffer from disease who struggle with homelessness or food insecurity, for those whose family life is difficult, and for all in this community who need your care. God of grace. For this community of faith, for all of our labors begun, continued, and ended in you, that they glorify your holy name, Bless your people with the strength to live into many vocations for the sake of the world. God of grace, we give thanks for the saints who now rest in their labors. Give us faith like them to love you with all our heart, and by your mercy, bring us into everlasting life. God of grace, gather together the sweet communion of the holy spirit gracious god we offer these in all our prayers to you through jesus christ our savior amen
0: invite you to pray now with me the prayer our lord has taught us to pray our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.
1: Go in peace, tell what God has done.